This is the KPMG Current Conversations podcast. In this episode, is preventing surprises in deep water drilling. Welcome to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast, brought to you by the KPMG Global Energy Institute. Current Conversations is a podcast series featuring in-depth conversations with the nation's top energy executives and luminaries to explore today's most pressing issues and emerging challenges affecting our industry. On August 3rd, 2020, Regina Mayer, KPMG Global and U.S. Head of Energy, connected with Sophie Zerkia, CEO of CGG, a French-based global geoscience technology leader. Ms. Zerkia shares the science behind the images her company creates of the structures deep below the earth. Those images help companies make smarter investment decisions around where to locate wells, how to avoid hazards, as well as minimize the environmental impact of drilling. Well, Sophie, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to have you. Let's start by describing CGG's business. I I know you are pioneers in geoscience, but offer an array of services. You're the CEO of CGG. Tell us more. Thank you, Regina, uh, for hosting me in this series. Um, As you say, um, CGG is a global geoscience technology leader. Uh, We have around 4,000 people globally and operate uh, three businesses. And those businesses are all geared towards uh, helping the clients understand uh, the earth and the subsurface, as well as de-risking their activities. So in equipment, uh, we design, manufacture, and support a wide range of uh, mechatronics technologies, mainly focused on um, signal generation and capture for the geophysical industry, so geophysical type of equipment. Geoscience, um, where we extract images uh, and information from the data that we have recorded, um, and that gives us uh, detailed images of the subsurface, and for that we're leveraging um, the expertise of our team, and we have around 2,000 geoscientists globally, and leading technology that includes uh, 260 petaflop of data centers of compute power. And the third business is the multi-client business, and that's where we build and sell a library of geology, well, and seismic data uh, in key basins in the world. So the the one thing that characterizes CGG is the number of masters and PhDs. Um, They represent around two-thirds of our geoscience and multi-client organization, and so that's around probably 1,500 of them, so a lot of uh, brains in CGG. And in 2019, uh, each business were almost the same size, around $400 to $500 million dollars. Great. It gives you strong diversification as you move through the current pandemic. But how do you see the geoscience services world evolving? Um, Data is clearly a differentiator in how we unlock natural resources using that data. And I would imagine significant advancements in computing could be game-changing. So how is it evolving beyond the, the great brains that you have? Yeah, your question is actually critical to to our sector. The if you if you ask the question to our clients, the the upstream companies, the imaging of the subsurface is the activity that have, has brought the most value to the value chain um, in the last uh, 
decades and is actually advancing very, very fast thanks to uh, particularly this, uh, the improvements in the, the high-performance computing. Um, so now we are able to do large-scale images um, and very detailed with a high resolution of the structures of the reservoirs that are deep down the earth, uh, several kilometers down there, and often you'll have seven, you know, uh, two kilometers of water as well. And that allows our clients to make uh, the best choices for well locations, for the drilling, to for the environmental standpoint, avoiding hazards, uh, and minimizing the environmental impact of what they do. And the, the precision of that, those images continues to improve all the time. Just the seven years I've been at CDG, I've seen enormous improvements. And that, as I said earlier, is due to the increases in compute power. The advances in the software and the algorithms that are using and and the people that we have. So when we put all these three things together, we're seeing huge improvements. And it does, and of course, over the years, we've built up expertise in the different basins of the world. So if you look at a few years ago, we had somewhere around 10 to 20 petaflops, and peta is 10 to the power 15. And now we have 260 petaflops. So, um, and that puts us, and that, and CGD over the years has always been in the top, say, 10, 20 um, industrially for want, uh, high performance capabilities in the world. Uh, and we would actually need more to do a better job. Uh, the main um, limiting factor in terms of those further increases of the technology, of the quality of the images, are the um, the quantity and the quality of the data. So we'd need uh, more denser, for example, data sets, and that has a cost associated to it. Uh, the more data, the better, obviously. Uh, again, this high-performance computing um, is, is important. And, and the third element is the advances in the technology itself. But generally speaking, we know what we have to do, but we need to enable it um, on high-performance computers and have access to those. And the clients are always uh, trying to find the right balance between the, you know, adding more data, more computer time to it, and finding the optimal cost versus value uh, for what they have to do. And I think we'll continue to see uh, those innovation around um, acquiring more and better data. And one of the advancements that we see now is um, putting the sensors, the geophysical sensors down at the seafloor. And that is, we call this nodes uh, technology. And that is the next stage of technology, particularly you see this happening big times in the Gulf of Mexico, where this is complex, in Brazil and then in the North Sea as well. Um, so, so basically, yeah, the more advances will get better and better images of the subsurface, which will help um, understand new areas and open up new frontiers, I think. That's exciting. So with the sensors on the seafloor, you know, and, and other areas, you're able to collect more data points. And then with the high-performance computing, you can crunch that data mm -hmm. quicker, more effectively, more efficiently. Do you see a time when there's more artificial intelligence that's processing that as well? Is that already baked in when you said there were algorithms? What, what's the future of AI in this space? Um, the way I see it today, AI comes as a complement. What CDG is doing is, is very much solving physical equations. So we know the physics around wave propagation. We're sending wave down the earth. We're listening to it. Um, in all directions and dimensions. 
Um, so, and there are laws of physics around that, and we need those computers, the algorithms, the IT, and the people and the brains to solve that. Uh, now, AI can possibly, in some instances, help us be more efficient in some of the tasks. Uh, one of the tasks that we have to do is to QC the data. Understanding is it do we have the right data? Do we have outliers? Are there errors and mistakes and things we need to correct? So as you get these huge data sets, it becomes more and more difficult to do this manually. So that's where things like AI help you become more efficient. Now, where I think AI will um, bring um, a lot of innovation is more onto the work that our clients are doing. So it is extracting uh, insights or interpretation of those images that we provide. So this is, okay, now you've got the structures and the images that are very precise. What do they mean uh, in terms of reservoirs, in terms of uh, oil in place, in terms of a number of different things? Uh, and that's where there isn't really equations about that. It's not um, the law of physics that will solve that, but an understanding on how the Earth has evolved over time and that interpretative nature is more conducive to to ai i think right right now that's that's really um very compelling and you, you must be on the forefront of those technology uh, changes but let's turn our attention to the current situation it's uh late summer 2020 so far in 2020 we've had a major loss in fossil fuel demands coupled with the lack of supply constraint that have conspired to send crude prices through the floor. Uh, fortunately, we have seen some rebound, but we're still well off our January crude price highs. How is this situation affecting the oil field services sector, and how are you steering CGG through these incredibly challenging times? Yeah, so as, as a service company, uh, what we see is not directly the, the oil price, but we see how our clients are rea reacting to the macro environment. Uh, they've announced um, capex cuts of around 25 to 30 percent on average compared to 2019, with vast differences between the U.S. land, which was cut around 50 to 60 percent, and international by less, say around 20 to 25 percent. So at CDG, we're mostly exposed to that offshore and international uh, ENP market, which uh, has been the most resilient. Um, yet the geoscience budget within that is the one that tends to be shifted around or always more affected in higher proportion uh, just because the we come in really early into the exploration development and it is a bit earlier to delay than other activities like drilling or production, for example. Um, but as I said earlier, this is the, the area that has brought the, the most value into what into helping our clients optimize their activities. And uh, one of the things we've tried to do at CGG as well is to shift um, the value we bring more and more towards the development and production optimization. So meaning that those images become more and more critical to um helping clients develop and make this big development investment, you know, positioning their wells optimally and optimizing their production. And that is helping us as well become a bit more and more, a bit more resilient. Now, the uh, where the, in addition, where the stakes are high, when you go offshore deep water, say Gulf of Mexico, the, um, the this is critical uh, for the activity and, and there's the aspect I mentioned earlier of the environmental uh, surprises. So you don't want a 
you know, to be hitting a, say, fault or having a surprise underneath the salt, you know, when you're drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. So we're helping our clients be more successful. But I think there is a general uh, rebasing of the industry. So we, we were in a certain trajectory with the oil price uh, at 60 and creeping up at 65, 70-ish. Now we're sort of at 40 and then creeping up to 50, 55, 60. So I think there's a, you know, the baseline has changed and, and we're going to be in that mode for a number of years. So which means we, um, we should plan for this ENP CapEx to be growing from that lower base that will be set this year. Uh, that said, when you look at the big picture in the long term, uh, there is a need for uh, what we do, for, and there is a need to compensate for the natural uh, production decline, which means that even if you keep the production flat or even, you know, in some scenario, you'd say we need less oil, although we need more gas. But regardless, you need to be active and the clients need to drill wells, they need to find new areas just to, to compensate for that natural production decline. And they also need to do that to um, upgrade their portfolio. So a lot of their um, opportunities are uneconomical at the 40, 50, 60 oil price. So they also need to be active to, to upgrade those portfolios. So that is, I guess, the positive side of things. And the more the what our clients need to do is delayed, I think the steeper the rebound will be because eventually things that need to happen will be pushed out and piling up. And all the clients all of a sudden will want to do the same thing at the same time, which which is not great, but that's, um, I think, at this point in time, the most likely scenario. Um, the If you look at the cycle, this round is quite different from, from previous cycle. The... Um, the efficiency gains um, that they got from lower pricing and their own sort of high-level processes have been found. So now they need to find this, you know, really reducing the headcounts and finding this next uh, generation of, of savings. The the other um, new thing as well that, that will happen is the, the whole digital agenda, which will change the way we work. Um, and what we deliver uh, to our clients and one things that we work on at CDD is to deliver the, the data to clients seamlessly that they, it, it is ready to be consumed by their information system and by their interpretation systems. So lots of components there. You sound optimistic about a rebound uh, in oil price, so that's exciting. I want to make sure my, my, my listeners heard that. Uh, and that you're looking for opportunities to move down the value chain, which makes enormous sense to me, like adding more value in the development and the production cycles, because I, I do think the future of exploration is going to be a lot more limited uh, and folks will, will, will focus on their plays. And then delivering things digitally so that it's easier for your clients to consume. You mentioned that CGGs, one of your key differentiators is the big brains and the people that you have. I think you mentioned 1,500 people with masters and PhDs and 2,000 geoscientists. What, if anything, have you done differently to retain, motivate, encourage your team through this pandemic? Uh, and how do you how do you retain you know these these highly prized um, individuals that are key to the success of the platform? Um, yeah, that's a that's a good point. It's been a big concern of mine to make sure that as we we lose on the 
on the direct interactions in the corridor and all these informal that are really an important component of the culture and the motivation that we find other ways to meeting that. So one of the things being a technology company, I mean, we have a very good IT organization, so we seamlessly switched over to the remote uh, model. So from one day to the other, we basically started to do the same thing and delivering the same services to our clients um, virtually. Um, so in a way, the projects kept going, you know, we were able to continue doing the meetings, you know, that we were doing physically before, you know, virtually, we did this with our clients together. Uh, so in that sense, the the thrill and the technology and the motivation from delivering a great job um, to our clients uh, remains there. But also the we've asked the managers to increase the frequency of the communication to employees, you know, to do the uh, virtual coffees, you know, to do um, more town halls and communication. Myself at my level, I do a lot more um, newsletters, you know, we definitely increased what I used to do quarterly. I'd started to do monthly. I've done a webcast with the, say, top 150 um, leaders of the company on a monthly basis to just try and explain where things were headed and what we needed to do. But um, on the other side as well, what we had put in place and we continued through the downturn is what we have an, we call it the tech talks, where um, the top two presentation, technology presentation, percolate to the top level um, once a month and they get presented to the senior leadership, to the executive leadership of the company. Um, so it is kind of an important thing for them to do. It's like a technology paper it's 10 15 minutes but it is a presentation that they've spent a lot of time preparing uh, and they do get to present to the executive leadership but also to a full range of it's open to everybody in the company uh, and it's something that has stimulated innovation and pride about uh, about what we do because it is visible at all levels of the company right so clearly technology is a key component of your culture and, and mm -hmm. encouraging those competitive juices and uh, people to contribute as well as increased communication. It makes a lot of sense. Let, let's shift gears and talk about the different kinds of resource plays. I, I was interested in your, your vast global footprint. You see lots of different resource development, uh, although you are obviously more focused on, on offshore and, and deep water. But I often get asked what plays seem to have the most promise. And I'm also often asked about the future of U.S. shale and its long-term viability. Many industry watchers predict its demise. You know, what are your thoughts given the current pricing environment, onshore, offshore? What's more insulated? Where do you see some of the investment dollars going? Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Uh, at CGG, we work with most uh, ANP companies around the world, so onshore, offshore. Um, although I would say where we bring the most value is where I was saying earlier where the stakes are high. So it is usually in those more sort of offshore deep water environment. But what's clear to me when I talk to and I deal with, um, you know, executive leadership at our clients organization is that there is room for success in all price environment into for all types of plays. Uh, and um, I have a lot of trust in the ability of our industry to innovate and to adapt to the market condition. Everybody was quite amazed as how the, the shale industry adapted to the previous downturn. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that there will be innovation, be it 
purely technical innovation, but process, you know, how do you deal with, how do you develop a field that will um, help us adapt? Um, the, the 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 future though in, in onshore US I think will look a bit different. The, the the kinds of clients that we were dealing with, a lot of smaller clients, private equity backed, I think uh, will be evolving and, and it could be a good thing where there's some consolidation and actually more uh, technology put into it. But us, I think equally there's a bright uh, future uh, for a number of offshore deep water plays. I wouldn't say for all of them because, as we know, some are more economical than others. And that's where you hear the, the clients talking about going to their core basins. And we know those core basins are more around, you know, Brazil, Gulf of Mexico, North Sea, um, rather than say, you know, at some point we're talking about the Arctic. And I think that's going to be much harder in the future. Uh, but I think the challenge remains um, uh, to reduce the cost, uh, the risk, and the overall cycle time, especially you know when it talks to the competitiveness of offshore versus onshore. Um, but as long as I've been in the industry, whether it was unconventional or U.S. onshore, the, it's always been um, more reactive market because of the, the quick time. It's much uh, cheaper if you want to get uh, to first oil. It's shorter term, uh, reduced exposure, lower risk, and et cetera, which has made North America onshore more volatile and more reactive. Uh, but um, And then the offshore side, just by the nature of the activity, it will be less volatile. And again, that's what ex- we're experiencing that um, in this round, because you can't just uh, do stop and go in that kind of environment. Um, so I guess I'm 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 not uh, taking uh, sides. I think there is room for everything. Now, of course, the U.S. onshore needs to get to that lower break-even point, and then the the offshore side needs to find ways to reduce that cycle time. Yeah, I'm I'm totally with you. I think there's room for all kinds of them, so long as, as you po- pointed out, very eloquently, as long as you can reduce risk, reduce cost, and reduce your cycle time. Uh, those are the key. So one of the other hottest topics at the beginning of 2020, you know, before other events overtook the discussion, was climate change. And we all watched the Davos and the World Economic Forum and uh, a lot of emphasis on, on climate change and what we were going to do around decarbonization. What are your thoughts on the energy transition? Uh, your company's based in, in France, so you see things maybe from more of a European perspective. Do you think it continues in its importance or does it take a back burner? Um, I see definitely two worlds um, because, yeah, I'm based out of France and I'm very sensitive to the European turn of things. But I do uh, spend time in Houston and interact with a lot with our more North American clients. Um, there is one fact is that the COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated the energy transition agenda for a number of our clients and especially the large European IOCs. And many of them have set this carbon neutral target by 2050. Taking a a step back, you look at the capex that's allocated to these activities. um, It is increasing as a percentage of the whole capex they're spending, but still remain marginal. I was looking at a report this morning. It was anywhere between 1, 1 1.5% and 5% of the overall capex. So it is still marginal. 
But now in a context, if you look at the upstream capex, in the context of an upstream capex that decreases, say, 25 to 30% on average, the reductions of the capex allocated to this energy transition agenda will be reducing less. So as a percentage of the whole, possibly it will be a little bit more important. And certainly, as I said, I don't see such a drive from North American clients and even less so from the national companies. The um, I guess the number one thing we could do within the upstream sector is to to do what we do better uh, and in a more sustainable uh, fashion. And I think if you think about what CGG does, we do um, we bring a lot on the table to reduce the environmental footprint of our clients. You know, to do to drill less wells, to be more successful at what they do, and understand better what's down there um, in terms of. Um, in terms of risks, now the uh, that's on on this sort of understanding the subsurface. But then there's the the other side of um, the the emissions, the carbon emissions, the methane emissions that are issues, leaks. I found out that there's uh, not an insignificant amount of oil and gas that sort of disappears through the networks. So if we could do all these things better, we're, it will go a long way. Uh, into the industry, uh, improving its image, if you want. Um, but I am convinced within all that that we'll see a huge acceleration around the carbon capture and monitoring. And I'm convinced as well that more or less new projects will all have a component. The new development project, upstream development projects will have a component of capture, carbon capture and monitoring. Um, so I think it's, um, generally speaking, it's, uh, it's taking more importance. It is still small, uh, but it is something that we need to to take into account. And, and as CGG, we're definitely on to the carbon capture side because we think we can bring something um, from the subsurface understanding and even the monitoring side. So in addition to pivoting around carbon capture and monitoring, with CGG being predominantly oriented around finding and capturing hydrocarbons, you know, more effectively, less risky, mm -hmm. uh, less costly, do you see a role for CGG in, you know, a late 21st century that is a decarbonized world? What, what did you scientists sort of do in a, in a future that has neutral hydrocarbons or uh, is completely, quote, unquote, decarbonized? What we're thinking, I mean, we're actually in that next stage um, of technology, of, of, sorry, strategy, you know, looking at what do we do next. Um, I think there are uh, in many areas, including in that energy transition, where we need to understand the subsurface. So first of all, as I said earlier, we need oil and gas for a number of years, and especially gas, which um, perhaps is not recognized enough as a key element of that energy transition. So not only is it a, a really good alternative to coal, but it is also um, the, the cleanest way or the, the most efficient way to produce hydrogen, for example, which is a very promising energy, is from gas and combined with the, the carbon capture components. So if you look at that, you say, well, gas probably has a long um, future and for us whether you're looking for gas or oil it doesn't make a difference now there's the whole carbon capture side where we can play a role then there's the geothermal energy as well is one that is um, growing um, appetite or interest around the world where we can play a role so i think we'll 
we'll look for in our strategy for areas where we can leverage um, our core capabilities, one, and two, that we can follow our client's strategy. So we have a name with our clients and say, okay, let's see where our clients are headed. Is there anything that we can contribute in those in our client's strategies? And that's that's the exercise we're doing right now. Right. Well, I'm glad you brought up geothermal because that's pretty fascinating to me growing up on Hawaii and uh, even being just visiting Yellowstone and seeing all the geothermal activity. Mm-hmm. It's, it's amazing what comes from the earth. So... Uh, I think you're absolutely right, geothermal hydrogen, um, and I'm a fossil fuel-friendly kind of gal from Houston, Texas. I think we need hydrocarbons for a longer period of time than other people do. But the key is to make them clean and more effective Mm -hmm. and uh, to try Mm -hmm. to decarbonize. So you have had a stellar career and are highly educated. We'll talk about you for a few minutes, Sophie. And I counted three degrees, uh, including two masters, one in numerical analytics and the other in aerospace engineering. Wow. So I guess that's important anyway, given that you work with so many really smart people at CGG that you're uh, a brainiac yourself. Um, but you started your career at Schlumberger, geophysics engineer, moved to leading the business in Latin America or Southern Latin America. You ran HR for Schlumberger. You also were the global CIO. Uh, you moved to CGG in 2013 and were promoted to CEO in 2018. So when you started, did you aspire to be a CEO? And what were the key things that, looking back, you learned that helped you become successful as a CEO? So first, Regina, thank you for the kind words. Um, Certainly, when I started my career, I had absolutely no idea where uh, I would go, where that would take me. Um, I just knew a few things. I wanted to do lots of different things, wanted to learn. I wanted to have an international career. And I, you know, I guess was lucky to start my career with Shlomoji. That is an amazing company. Uh, They've offered me you know, all these opportunities that you were describing that was so different that I would have never considered myself. And as I grew up, uh, I became closer to the senior leadership and I was closer to the CEO, observing, and I recognized what that position was about. I, I started to think, why not? You know, why, why I think I could do that. Um, and I think I could do it well. And so it just, um, it was only more, I'd say, you know, guess last, 10 years or so that I thought, hmm, this is something that, that I could actually do. But for me, the, the key thing was to observe, to be able to observe those CEOs in the job and to learn from them. And and the, the most, um, I guess, the, the challenging bit for me was to learn the codes, you know, the soft side of things. And I was always being very operational. So actually the running and getting things done was always easy for me. But the whole, you know, subtle part of the job was the part I had to observe and learn. Well, it's pretty fascinating when you look at your educational pedigree and then how you've evolved your career. Um, You know, like I said, aerospace engineering and now running a large geosciences uh, firm. Do you see having that really strong technical engineering background as, as fundamental to your success as well? You know, I think so. I've been thinking about it, you know, and and I do think about it um, as part of the succession plan, right? What kind of people should I think about? 
to replace me because it's part of my job and part of the uh, the board's job to make sure you know that we think about that. Um, you know, I do think for leading a company like CGG that has so many uh, such a high technology content, it is important to have someone that really loves technology. So it's not to say that someone who is not an engineer who um, could not learn and if they were willing enough um, that they could get up to speed, but someone that has a very, very strong appetite, respect uh, for, for technology, for technology as far as making business of it, not just technology for the sake of it. Uh, but I, yes, I do think um, it makes me more relevant and it makes me more credible uh, with the teams that we have, uh, that I understand what they do. Yeah, I, I would think that credibility is really important. And let me just follow up on one thing that you talked about. You, in observing CEOs that you were working with, looking for the softer side or the subtle things uh, versus that, you know, get things done, take action. And you were head of HR as well as head of IT, which I, I find that, that's a unique uh, career combination. Besides observing others how, in terms of how they led, were there any things that you did in particular that you kind of look back now and say, wow, that was a really good thing that I did, so I learned a lot more about managing people? Just for our listeners who might have a similar background and aspire to grow into a leadership position, any, any tips or tricks on learning the softer side of, of leadership? I guess you learn from your mistakes, right? So I, I think it's what's important is to to be on the lookout and 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 wanting to learn and to to evolve. I mean, it's recognizing that we're we're not perfect. Um, we could always do better, and having that humility to to say, "Hey, I can learn. I've, this this is where I've made a mistake," and perhaps trying to get feedback on those, you know, how could have done this differently? So I guess it's my mindset. I try to uh, question myself um, all the time and, and, and get feedback and interact with, um, with other people, people from my team. I learn a lot from my team. And I do, I, by the way, observing people in a leadership is not just above, it's below, it's everywhere. You know, you see good leaders that you admire. It could be in your company, it could be outside. Uh, but I guess it's um, having a form of curiosity and um, and humility. I think is important. Good point. Observing people in in all at all levels and in all roles, and the willingness to self reflect and learn from your own experiences. What very well said. So let's go to some closing remarks. We know these are tough times. Um, we know it won't last forever, although. <laughs> Certainly, month five, it kind of feels like it might, but I know we will come out of this. What positive message or closing remarks would you like to leave with our energy industry listeners? Yeah, so it's, um, I couldn't agree with you more uh, that uh, in every challenge and difficult time, it's uh, there's something good can come out of it. And that's, you know, I'd say we need to, talking of, looking at the weather analogy, we need to see through the clouds that kind of fog our vision and, and look for those opportunities. So you could always choose to see all the negatives and why it's difficult, but choose to say, hey, you know, how can I make this difficulty actually an opportunity for the company? Um, I'm, I know it will be tough. Certainly this year, we all know that it's pretty much over, but uh, into next year as well. But the, ind the industry will come out stronger, leaner, certainly more efficient. 
And one thing I'm hoping for is that it will force uh, true collaboration uh, across the value chain. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, reinvention across companies, uh, be it uh, uh, within the service sector, within the operator sector. And I think we could do a better job together. Um, again, you know, I'm convinced that the world will need that oil and gas well into the future. I think we could be positioned CGG as a as a very positive actor to help our clients to um and, and and as well, not only in doing what, you know, the, the upstream activities, but also to help them effectively transition to this um, greener and renewable energy. That the, let's not forget the, the people side. So the people, the data is important. We haven't spoken too much about digital, but data is important and technology is fundamental to, to achieving those goals. And I look forward to seeing more and more game-changing innovation um, as we move into the future. So I'm, I'm, I have some optimism there. That's great, Sophie. And CGG has a terrific platform with data and technology and people that can help improve the value chain. Uh, and I think you articulated what you all do very well um, and made a strong case for the role that you'll play in the future. I'm very grateful that you took time out of your busy schedule to join me. So thank you so much. It was a pleasure to speak with you today. Well, pleasure. Uh, thank you, Regina, for having me. And I look forward to, to seeing you in person. Thank you for listening to our podcast episode on preventing surprises in deep water drilling. A transcript of this episode is now available on the KPMG Global Energy Institute at www.kpmgglobalenergyinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast to be notified of new episodes.